You listen to 247 Real Talk. This is your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this very special episode. He was a prison guard in California's highest security and most notorious correctional institution. His, for 16 years, actually, his daily duties included serving meals to gang leaders, proctoring serial killers in lockdown cells, patrolling exercise yards filled with violent felons while unarmed and outnumbered a thousand to one. He belonged to an elite unit called the Investigative Services Unit, the Internal Affairs Unit, that was responsible for solving horrific crimes occurring inside the walls. He's retired and he's a decorated veteran officer, but he did not retire of his own volition. He became the most influential whistleblower uncovering the silent secrecy of a group of rogue prison guards who call themselves the Green Wall. On this episode, we'll be listening to the story of none other than Donald DJ Vodka. Welcome to 247 Real Talk. Thank you for joining me for this most, what I'm expecting to be, very special episode. Thanks, Julian. I really appreciate it. Let me come on and tell my story. Yes, we're uh, 247 Real Talk is all about real talk and real stories. And my audience understands that that's what this is for. That's what this podcast is about. And you have a compelling story to tell. So um, I may interrupt you as you go along when I have questions, but... Why don't you start by giving us a little background and then going on from there? Yeah, I, uh, I entered the Department of Corrections in uh, March of 1988. After I uh, got out of the United States Army, I spent four years at Fort Bragg. And then I came home to California and I entered the academy in March of 1988 as a correctional peace officer. And after I attended the academy, I uh, my first duty assignment was uh, at a new prison called Corcoran State Prison which is security housing. It's a shoe. It's a maximum security prison in, in California, brand new prison where it housed the notorious, all the heavy gang members, all the shot callers for all the gang members throughout the CDC in California and also notarized uh, individuals like Charles Manson, Sirhan Sirhan, and other uh, high, uh, high-profile high serial killers. I spent four years there and, 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 and worked in different positions. And shortly after that, there was another prison that opened up and, and I wanted to go activate that one, which is Calipatria State Prison. And, and I, I transferred down there to a new prison to help set up that as a veteran guard. And shortly after that, I um, got burned out down there and ended up transferring to the Northern California, the most notorious prison in California. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. It's called Pelican Bay State Prison. I ended up going on their investigations. You ended up there as their evidence officer. I spent a couple years up there and and I needed another change. My wife needed another change. And we made our way down to the central central coast and opened another prison up, which is called Salinas Valley State Prison in uh, December of 1996. I spent about five years before I got an emergency transfer uh, to another prison after I exposed a, a, a group of prison guards who called themselves the Green Wall. They were rogue prison guards uh, after a Thanksgiving riot. 
1998, uh, which they were attacked by Southern Hispanic inmates on the yard, and they uh, they uh, they re re went after them again, and they ended up uh, brutalizing these inmates and beating them down and, and destroying their property, and then that's when they formed this group called the Green Wall. And uh, after that, I um, ended up uh, interviewing with the Inspector General and Office of Internal Affairs, and and shortly after that, I was labeled by uh, my peers, my coworkers. As a rat, a snitch, uh, as an inmate lover, you're a dead man walking. Everything they could do to 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 make me crack, and uh, that's not what was I was all about. Okay, okay, so that's that that's a uh, an overview. But I know, and I will, and my audience will want some details um, to really get the gist of what it's like. So that. Uh, particular prison uh, where now was the green wall for specifically for that prison or was it something a bigger um, unit or a bigger group that that transcended no, all of the prisons started, in, in, in uh, California it, no it actually started at Salinas Valley State Prison after the Thanksgiving riot in November of 1998 they, uh, a bunch of uh, officers uh, started a little group and they wanted a little camaraderie they wanted and the, the warden at the time at the prison was behind the ordeal. He had this little unit called the Investigative Services Unit that he had had total control of. And he told these prison guards that he knew very well, I, I want you to go put fear and intimidation to these inmates. These inmates aren't going to control my prison. You do whatever you have to do, and, and I'll back you up 100%. So these guys took it upon themselves, knowing they had the backing of the warden. So whatever they did criminally, criminal activity, they, they weren't going to get in trouble. And these guys took it upon themselves to uh, set up inmates for more time, give them a third strike, plant weapons in their cells, uh, physically abuse inmates, uh, beat them down, uh, whatever they wanted to do. Like I said, they had control of the warden. A lot of the convicts and inmates on the yard, when these guys stepped on the yard, and these guys are big guys, like I'm six foot five, 320 pounds. These guys were my size. So once they hit the yard, the whole yard got quiet, and these inmates basically feared them because they know they were on the yard for, to do, do wrongdoing against these guys. Now, I'm assuming that, um, I guess, uh, uh, thinking about the questions one would have, you, and I mentioned this when I introduced you, you, you were outnumbered, and I don't, I'm not sure if it's the same thing in that particular prison, but you were outnumbered in some cases 1,000 to 2? Correct. I mean, on, on the yards, each yard, we had four yards at Salinas Valley State Prison. Each yard housed 1,000 inmates was five housing units on that yard. And uh, each yard had a thousand inmates. And when there was only one to two officers around the yard at that time, during like any time of yard, they were out on the yard, you know, socializing, walking the yard, playing exercises and talking. So there's only an average of about two to three guards, sometimes only one guard on the yard. And uh, the other guards were in the housing units or we, we were really, we were way outnumbered when we came to the institutions. We only had, Five six hundred prison guards and all three watches to, to to control that prison, and the prison alone there was controlled by the the weapons up in the towers. That those we relied on our our gunners just in case anything happens. Because most of the prisons I worked at, like Salinas, eighty five percent were in for murder. These guys were doing life without. They didn't care what they, what, what happens to a prison guard. So, with this group of uh, that was called the Green Wall, um. 
what numbers when you said when they walked in the yard, people expected something to happen. Um, and again, I know nothing about that that uh, environment, so I'm thinking a thousand guys are, are how many ever in the yard at that point? It would have to be. I mean, I, I'm assuming that it couldn't be just two or three guards, irrespective of size, with that many inmates who were lifers. Yeah, well, that, well that's how California operated because. We were on the yard. We had everything a, a cop would carry except their gun. You know, but we we couldn't have our guns on the yards because you know, they would control or control us and take them. But we had batons and pepper spray and gas, and uh, we used them when we had to use them. But um, we're, there wasn't riots or fights every day. But we always had to keep up our guard. And like I said, there's we had two or three officers on the yard. You know, the other other officers were in the housing units. They had two officers in the housing unit and one upstairs watching them. With a, with a weapon, and then we had a yard yard gunner overseeing the whole yard. So you know, we were walking around amongst, amongst these guys, and, and you have to show that respect. If you give respect to these guys, you're going to get the respect back. But when you start talking down to them and, and abusing your authority and abusing that badge on your chest, then then you're looking for trouble. Okay, so these guys that will go out in the yard um, to target a specific or a group of specific inmates. Um, from what I'm understanding is that the, the even the skeleton crew of the gunner above and whoever else, they were feared enough to stop the other hundreds or whatever inmates from intervening and, and um, attacking these guards when they were out there to do damage. Or did the guards go out there and remove that person from that uh, environment and then uh, inflict whatever damage they did? No, well, these prison guards, when they'd come on the yard, and these members of the Green Wall, they'd come on the yard, and they'd walk across the yard, and the whole yard would stop and watch them. And these prison guards, uh, Green Wall members, would go into a housing unit to give you an example. If they knew an inmate was going home, he's been down for 20 years, and he's going home in a week or so, and he was a troublemaker on that yard, they, they knew about him. They, they plotted against him. They went up to a cell, and they, they handcuffed the inmate to the handrail to what, let him watch they're going to do a cell search. And then they put a, pulled out an inmate manufactured weapon. They'd plant a weapon right in front of him. And now he's looking at his third strike. He's not going home. So, you know, who who the court's going to believe? They're going to believe the prison guard over the inmate. And and majority of the inmates are going to either third strike and 25 to life, or they're going to get more time on their sentence. These guys were, were evil. These guys would, if they didn't like you, you're done. And that's including staff members, staff members who got in their way. They, they they made it known, you know, you, you get in their way, they're gonna they're gonna destroy, vandalize your car, make it really rough for you to work inside that institution. And I had no part of that, and they knew I had no part of that. So when you decided to, I don't know, well, I'm I'm gonna ask you a two part question. The first part is, what was or a three part question maybe? So part one is when did you decide enough was enough? Part two is what triggered you? To decide, is there a specific incident on top of all the incident, incidents that triggered you that enough was enough? And th- part three is once you decided to to out to, you know to, to be the whistleblower, was there a an, an overlay? So were, were, did you go through the whistleblowing process while you were still there um, with with the with the possibility of you know maybe? Once you you blew the whistle, that someone could actually find out because we know that there's kind of no secrecy in 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 certain environments, even environments that's supposed to be confidential. So, 
part one is, you know, what made you decide, you know, what part two was there a specific incident that was enough? And then, um, did you continue to work there during some phase or some part of the process where you blew the whistle? Well, the very first part is, um, Julian, when I entered the academy, I, I took an oath. I took an oath at the end of my academy, and I got an oath, and I got my badge pinned onto my, 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 my shirt. My mom pinned that onto my shirt. I was so proud when my mom did that. But when she pinned that on my shirt, you know, I took an oath, and I took an oath to here to here to protect and serve. I didn't take an oath to adhere to the code of silence. And then shortly after that, you know, I was, uh, I had enough. I seen enough, and 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 I was uh, ordered by the warden at that institution. Uh, he wanted to know all my knowledge, what I knew about these guys who called themselves the Green Wall. He called me up to the office, and he said, Officer Monica. Do you have knowledge about who these guys are, the green wall, who they are? I said, yes, sir, I did. I said, well, I need you to write a report, everything you know. I said, well, okay, sir, I work with these guys. Is my memorandum going to be strictly confidential? He, he assured it. Yes, yes, Monica, your memos, nobody's going to see it. So I uh, I typed up a memo. I had it typed up and, and gave it to the warden on Monday and, and, and went on my way to my my my, my duty position. And, and shortly after that, about a month and a half, two months later, these guys from the ISU unit, you know, came down and, and quoted verbatim out of my memorandum, everything I said in that memorandum. The only way they, they could have saw that if, if the warden presented my memorandum to these guys. And you know what? Then, then after that, I just, I lost it. And then I, uh, I, I contacted uh, higher ups in Sacramento, the office inspector general, the office of internal affairs and informed them what was going on. And they met me later that evening. They met me at my house and we interviewed for about four hours and, and uh, shortly after that, a couple weeks later, they ended up coming to the prison and they raided the warden's office, escorted him out and escorted him out and uh, several other guards out and, and confiscated evidence, all that. And then then I was really done. I was I was a dead man walking. Everybody hated me then. So they moved me over to another uh, prison overnight, which is unheard of for my protection, see if I can go somewhere else to, to work and survive. And it didn't work out too long because, you know, word travels and Shortly after that, I went out on uh, stress and, and, and filed a uh, civil lawsuit on a whistleblower lawsuit, and I had to get my own attorney because I even went to my own union, my chapter president. I looked at him. I, I said, hey, I've been trying to get a hold of you, Mike. And he looked at me and goes, oh, you're Officer Vodica. We've been advised not to talk to you, and he walked away from me. He, and I was a union-paying member for 16 years, and he would not protect me. So and that's that's crazy. Let's back up a little bit. So from what I'm understanding from the, the, the sequence of events, you gave the memo to your warden. Um, from listening to you tell the story, it seems to me that it was, it was the, the, since the warden, as, as, and you can stop me when I'm wrong, since the warden was part of this and, or, was allowing this green wall to exist, knowingly allowing this green wall to exist. Um, he asked you for the memo, I'm assuming, to determine which side of the fence you were on. Um, correct. And then Absolutely correct. he leaked that or he gave it to someone else, but you, know, you used, you used uh, timelines like a month or two, which means that once you told the warden and you submitted this memo, for that period of time, those members of the Green Wall had to have already known that, you know, you had blown the whistle at least to the warden. That's correct, because after I um, 
I heard later on after what the warden did, he he called these guys a part of the ISU unit. That he he formed you know his own little gang and brought them up to the office and conference room and showed them my report, burned copies of it. And he said, "You guys are done. We're done." Officer Monica knows everything that's going on, and he's reported that to his higher ups. Now this is going to be a big investigation. We just, we just, you know, we had to watch out for Officer Vodka. You know, I mean, just be careful around him, you know. And, and they kept on, they couldn't handle that. They kept on coming down and calling me on the phone, threatening me, you're a dead man walking, and you, you need to leave this prison. You're not going to survive very much. And so the warden threw me under the bus, you know. I mean, just actually, he, he was involved. He was the, he was the kingpin. He, he wanted, he, he wanted, uh, he didn't want the stuff to be exposed to higher ups. And, I wasn't going to tolerate that. I took it higher. I, I took it all the way to the director of corrections and who oversees all the prisons in California. So you were, uh, for all the intense purposes, you were basically in, in danger every single day that you went to work. Um, Absolutely. I was I, every day, you know, I lived an hour away from the prison and, and you know, I didn't, I, I needed a job. I needed to come to work. I had to pay bills, you know, and I had to, I had to take care of my family and, and at the time, and, you know, and my family were scared to death, you know, what I did and because, you know, I, I went against prison guards. I wouldn't, I didn't go against inmates. The inmates loved what I did later on. These prison guards, they, they, they knew if there, if there was going to be an investigation, they're going to be find out criminally and they're going to end up going to prison and they didn't want that. So naturally they wanted to take out the person who's gonna, who blew the whistle. So uh, after that, the OIG came down, like I said, and swamped the, the prison and and then they moved me overnight, you know, with the help of my good friend of mine, Joe Rodoso, who was, uh, is, he's in the book, and uh, got me overnight. And then my last day, I lasted about eight months at the southern prison because they, the word traveled. People, you know, telephones travel. And the word got out, I was, I was a no good, I was a rat. They started doing that same thing at the other prison. Nobody could protect me. So I ended up uh, leaving there and uh, obtaining a civil attorney and fighting the Department of Corrections on a whistleblower case. And and then uh, shortly after that, I, I testified in, in one of the biggest Senate hearings in the state of California in front of a couple senators, and, and they wanted to know everything about me. And my, my story hit the front page of the LA Times, and it went out like wildfire. And then shortly after, I testified for two hours in a packed courtroom with camera, TV cameras and everything. They moved me off the grid for hiding for six months until everything settled down. Okay, so... Um, so then there's a couple of questions again. Um, I'll try to slow them down because I don't, I, I know each one might require a certain amount of detail from you. So let's start with, um, you, you basically, to put it in a nutshell, you eventually, you know, sort of came off the job disability wise or, 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 or some, some manner of such. And you went through the process of testifying, et cetera, to, to out the situation, as a result of your whistleblowing, or what was the result of your whistleblowing? Well, the result of my whistleblowing was uh, I changed after I, I went out against them. Litigation-wise, it took years to fight them, and, and the results of my litigation, there was policies and procedures changed within the Department of Corrections. I changed laws uh, in the state of California for whistleblowers to come forward, not to fear re retaliation or retribution from the Department of Corrections because there was no set policy for whistleblowers to come forward to talk about the wrongdoing, what they see at the prisons. They had no recourse of being protected until I, I testified and it opened a can of worms. And the, the whole department of corrections had to go through mandatory training 
about the code of silence. We, we're not going to adhere to the code of silence. Upper management said, if you belong to any of these groups or former groups, we find out, we'll terminate you. We'll terminate you on the spot. We're not going to tolerate it. We have a zero tolerance about it. So what I did, what I did is emphasize, I, I opened up a huge can of worms for massive, uh, you know, massive, everything had to be changed in the department and, and go the right way. But the, the code of silence is always going to exist. Yes, well, assuming that that um, and that is um, that code of silence is even beyond um, Department of Correction. I think that is inherent in any kind of um, any kind of business and organization. Period, irrespective of whether it's law enforcement or not or whatever it is, that's just part of that is human nature. Um, but so the, so, I'm assuming to did you uh, two part question again? Part one: Did you have to at any point? identify the actual members of the green wall and part two in after you identify them, if you did, were there any actions disciplinary or otherwise taken against those members of that green wall? I sure did. I identified who the members were. It's in my book. And, and I identified to the internal affairs, unit who these members were and who they were. And after they did a, an investigation, several officers were, uh, terminated from their positions and and ended up uh, leaving the prison system. But like like I said, we have a, one of the most powerful unions in the United States, and they were they had the backing from the union. And later on, which is unfair, these officers got their jobs back because the union, um, like I said, they're powerful. I mean, they're they have the money for everything, and, and they they got a lot of these officers back back to to work with back pay and. It's ludicrous, but uh, the warden and the warden who did this to me, he, they forced him to retire. Either you retire or we'll terminate you. So that retired way early than what he expected to be because uh, uh, there was too much damage evidence when I brought against him and his little gang uh, for him to come back to win. Okay, so... I remember you mentioned it to me and you said also, uh, you mentioned it a short, a short while ago that you, they kind of hid you for a while. I'm assuming that prior to you testifying in the Senate, or or was it after? And it was it was after I as after uh, January 21st, 2004. Uh, shortly after that, you know, the uh, my attorney said, "Well, you guys in the in the conference, what are you guys going to do for my client? Are you going to do anything for him?" And, and a couple of the special agents came out, and said, we, "We're going to put him somewhere. We need to move him, and we're going to put him somewhere where nobody will know where he's at." So. I didn't know what I was doing. I went uh, three hours in a, a black SUV with my partner, Joe Reynoso, and went up into the high country, the back country, off the grid. And, and I was uh, through, going through two lock gates. And, and There's pictures of that in the book where I was. And I ended up that, back there for about almost six months and, uh, until we, we, we went into litigation with the Department of Corrections. Now, was it you or was it the entire family? It was just me. Uh, at the time, I was... I was going through a divorce because my wife couldn't handle what I was going through, and and she didn't want no, you know, she didn't want to back me, and and it was just me and me only. And I, I had I had a, I had a son from a previous marriage, and, and uh, this my the one that didn't want to stay with me was my second marriage. And so that was hard on me too. And then I had to go out back in the in, off the grid in the mountains and 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 stay well hidden. So you're saying that, um, and this is unfortunate, but you're saying that. Uh, during this process, as it unfolded, your then wife made the decision that she was not in agreement with you doing what you did. 
Correct. I mean, she just didn't like it. She didn't want, she, she felt her life was in danger and uh, she just didn't want no part of it. And she had two other kids, you know, from previous marriage and she just didn't want to be a part of it. She just felt, you know, Hey, I had enough. We were only married for a short time. We were together two years and married for a couple months. And, uh, during this whole ordeal, you know, she's, she knew I started it, but she didn't want to finish it with me. And we, we parted separate ways. I and mean, it was a good separate ways. We didn't, we don't hate each other to this day. And, and I had to go when I had to go to protect myself, you know? So, all right. So this is some time has passed. Um, we're still talking about, you know, there, there are many movements around the country and around the world that are related to criminal justice reform. There is criminal justice reform. In, uh, I'm going to um, mention a few of them for a specific reason. I'll get to that real quick. But there's criminal justice reform in terms of, of uh, sentencing. There's criminal justice reform in terms of, and let's be blunt about it, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and the disparity in sentencing. And there's a whole system where there's a lot of unfairness that goes through the system. Your, your uh, efforts led to one part because I'm sure that the, uh, from at least from what you've indicated and from what statistics say that anybody who was the recipient of um, this, this, this green wall was someone of... Um, that was that would fall in one of the categories that today we still need we still think needs criminal uh, justice reform. Where are you today? Where where you know you you you've gone through this ordeal and you're still around. You're still making a living. You're still and you don't have to be specific about where. But where is DJ Valica today in terms of life? Haven't left that behind. Well, you know, I mean, you know, I wrote a book. I mean, shortly after I got done. Uh, with litigation and all that. And I had to come out of hiding to uh, bury my father. And, uh, and uh, I, saw, I got to see him for about a week or two weeks before he died. And he, he told me, he said, son, me and your mom are proud of you. We were so proud of you. And, you know, I'm not going to be around very much longer. And I know, dad, I know. It's just, you know, son, you need to write a book. Write, write a book of you, what they did you, your life story. You ever thought about writing a book? I said, not really, dad. I said, well, I, I would like you to do that. I mean, before I leave this this world, can you promise me you write that book? And I promised my father I'd write this book. And so when he passed away, and shortly after my mom passed away, I sat down and just never wrote a book, had all my evidence and everything together. And, and I, I, I knocked it out, take about two years to write it. And it's the most powerful book ever written, uh, probably ever in the United States. There's no prison guard, especially in the Department of Corrections in California, who challenged the Department of Corrections and won. And, uh, I just want major change. I want change. I want prison reform. You know, I'm all for Black Lives Matter. I'm all for All Lives Matter. I'm not. I'm not for this abusive uh, authority by police officers, correctional officers, judges, the public defenders. How they, they, you know, they need to. They need to do, do their job correctly. You know, they're not above the law, and we need to stop people that who are like that above the law. And I'm very, very much so on prison reform. Anything I can do to talk about it in my story. You know, change has to happen within within inside the walls. I mean, we have to we have to weed out the rogue prison guards, the rogue staff, who make it hard every day for the incarcerated to program and to survive. Um, where I'm at today, I'm I'm just taking day by day. You know, and you know, um, like I wrote I wrote a book, and right now there's 
people in LA that uh, that are interested in, in making my story in a motion picture as a feature film, and and you know maybe that one day it'll happen, you know. But as for me, I take every day one step at a time, and I thank God that I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, that's great. I, I want to make that distinction because I know my audience will. Um, they're a very keen audience and they will pick up on, on, on everything we say and especially this uh, story that's as riveting as yours. Um, anyway, and then and to make the distinction that the reason that um, there's a separate Black Lives Matter movement uh, is because the populations that make up the prison system are predominantly uh, black and brown people. And I don't know what you saw while you were in there, but there is, I know that in other states, and I'm assuming not, nothing should be different in California, that the treatment um, from, you know, at different levels is different. Uh, well, and, and, and it has a lot of um, dynamics to it, economic dynamics and um, um, systemic racism and all those things. But I don't, I don't want to digress from your story. I'm saying that just to say that your, what you did is part of that reform process and a very powerful part because, um, yeah, I'm a, you know, like I said, uh, Julian, I'm a white officer. I'm a Caucasian officer. It doesn't matter. I don't care if you're black, white, brown, Asian, or whatever. These these individuals need to be treated as humans. You know, we're not there to to uh, torture them or or give them more time. You know, um, I was I was a white officer and I went up against my own. You know, and and. And they they abuse black inmates. They abuse Hispanics. They very rarely abuse white inmates, but they targeted the uh, majority race. You know, they didn't care. Right, and, and that's you know, that's why I made that mention because that's actually a credit to what to what you did. Um, meaning that what you know what you did is one um, effort in, in in many more that are needed to to bring uniformity and to bring. Um, um, integrity to a system, and uh, you know, and I I understand the 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 battle that people face. You know, on this podcast, I've had the incredible honor of um, having episodes or, or interviewing people of you know on, on both sides, so to speak. And when I say both sides, I've interviewed quite a few people who have lost family members to homicide, and. The more I interview them, I have a even I even have a mini series of parents who lost children to homicide, and you know I understand the two different perspectives. The one I think the last uh, um, episode I did was a gentleman by the name of Kevin McCall, and the you know he is a Caucasian and this and the 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 perp. A murderer, convicted murderer, was a black guy, and so I understand that this is a whole um, intricate web of things to deal with because there is emotions involved. Um, but as we as we dissect it and look at different parts of it to make them better, um, I have to one hundred percent agree with you that you know if someone's been tried and convicted the prison sentence is being imprisoned. The prison sentence is not being abused in prison, is not being tortured in prison, is not being, um, you know, not treated like a human being in prison. You know, one of the things that you said, and I have friends of mine who are also COs, 
And, you know, they always come back and say the same thing that, you know, you give the inmates respect and you get respect. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I would kind of think that when I hear them say that and they're, uh, some of them are more recent CEOs, I would, I would want to think that maybe some part of what you did has trickled down through the system across the country and, um, you know, CEOs have decided that it simply, it simply makes sense and it's simply as human beings the code of treating another person as a human being um does not change if you're incarcerated it shouldn't change i mean you know like you know they need to change some like humanity treat these guys with respect and you'll get respect back but you know these all these prisoners in california had a, a number and they were always called hey inmate come over here or hey convict they never called them by their first names but our last names uh that they, that needs to change. We need to start calling these guys, you know, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones. Hey, come around and talk to you, or Mr. Smith, can I pat you down? You know, instead of belittling him, call him an inmate or a convict, or you know, I mean, hey, hey, number one, 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 get over here. You know, uh, things need to be changed that way in the prison reform. And and they, like I said earlier, we have to weed out the rogue prison guards because these guys make it hard on these guys to to incarcerate to to program out. And another thing, Julian. Not all officers are bad. Not all correctional officers or police officers are, are bad. It's that, that that selective few, that selective few that make it hard on officers who want to go to work and do the right thing to, you know, make, make sure these guys are safe. But these, these other prison guards, uh, they make it hard on uh, other staff members to, to do their job. And I understand that because, as you know, it, it's, it's, I sit in, a, in, in, a spot here with, with this podcast that I actually like because I have good friends and family members who are, are um, either correction officers or police officers. And I know people who are incarcerated as well. You know, I am, I'm sort of an even keel right down the middle type of guy. And I judge um, issues or instances individually because and, and it's a tough place to get to. And it's a tough place sometimes to have a conversation about because you know, at many times, so much has gone on over so many years, even in the situation where, you know, where you came from in, in, in the prison system that, you know, um, sort of, it's very difficult to label individuals. People get lumped together and they get labeled. Um, again, I have the unique um, opportunity and privilege of knowing some great you know, guys, family members and others who are all law enforcement um, I've gone through my own past with, with, um, being on, on, on the right side of law enforcement. And, um, so it's, it's, it, it's a very interesting you know thing to hear you, to, um, actually have this intimate conversation with you about your individual experience. Um, and I, and I think that why, what you did is, so important, and I I know I'll have listeners too, and I'll I'll speak to my listeners before we end the episode. But in the last three, four, five years, maybe decade even, it is so important to treat someone even incarcerated with respect, because almost every month we have found that as medicine has advanced and things like DNA came out. We're finding a lot of people, I think it was just, I think I saw a case about two weeks ago where a guy is suing someone in New Jersey, I think it is, um, because um, 
he he you know he was found not guilty through DNA or whatever after spending some incredible amount of years in jail, and I think it was you know twenty four years or more than you know like that, and to to be innocent, and I know that's probably the, the probably the most laughable things you know among inmates to walk into prison charged with murder or convicted of murder and keep saying I'm innocent, probably nobody believes you. And but we keep seeing it happen over and over again. The numbers are getting large of people who are in jail in you know uh, and they're innocent. They spent long terms in jail, and now to add the humiliation of being victimized, um, you know, after being victimized in terms of being convicted, you need to be placed in an environment where um, you're still treated as a human being, and given respect. And so, That's absolutely correct. I think that. You know, there's there's a lot of work to be done. I think that it was incredibly brave of you to do it, especially uh, what is that, 15 years ago or whatever the case may be. Because I would think that we have made a lot of progress over the last 15 years. So at the time when you did it, you know, I'll be honest with you, you know, people probably looked at you and said, you know, that you you that's a death sentence. Um, but you survived it, and you wrote a book, and you have undoubtedly brought uh, a spotlight onto not just, you know, California, but I would think the, the institutions around the country. And now you're saying that there's a possibility that they have a movie about it. Yeah, they're talking about it. They're talking about a, a feature film. And, and uh, I've already got a screenplay written. And, you know, all, all, I mean, the, the, the book is, everybody tells me who reads the book. The book is, a, it's a movie DJ. I mean, what you did, it, this is this is outright of a movie, and and people need to know what goes on behind the prison walls because people don't get to know what goes on behind these prison walls. Uh, the media can't even get in behind the prison walls. And, and if I was a Julian, if I was still an active prison guard, we wouldn't be talking right now because if they found out I was talking to you as an active prison guard, I'd be terminated. I'd be terminated from employment. No further questions asked. Nobody would back me. My own union would back me. So, you know, I'm, this is the only time I can actually talk about what, what happened to me and what happens in the prisons in California. And it happens throughout the whole United States. I mean, these, there's prison guards getting indicted and all that for the abuse of their authority. So are you, do you still receive threats? I, I'm retired. I got a medical retirement um, when this all happened and, and, uh, you know, I, I settled with the Department of Corrections two weeks before trial. They, weren't, they didn't want to take this to court because they were exposed a lot more than what they wanted. And they uh, ended up settling with me. Not a lot of money, but enough to get me by and, and enjoy the, my rest of my life as much as I possibly I can. But and, do you still uh, receive threats? Do I still receive all threats? Um, no, because right now I'm not living in California. I do uh, watch over my back, and you know, I um, I, I don't go to California at all. And and uh, um, when I was in California, I was all, all the time getting threats, left and right. They were trying to loc- locate me and try to see where I was living. And and uh, except for when I get up to that hiding area, nobody could find me. Um, and do you think I that? Thought, do you think that when this podcast airs, do you think that? you may revive some interest in people who are angered by what you did? 
I don't care if they are or not, because you know what? I don't, if they, if they're angry, but what I did, you know, um, they know they're, they know they've done wrong. And I don't think they want to end up going to prison. I mean, they work the prison. They, they want to go to prison and end up being inside the prison where, where inmates and convicts aren't going to like them too well because they, you know, they were exposed. You know, the thing is, is my book, Julian, my book, when I had it uh, published, they banned my book from going into prisons in California. They wouldn't allow my book to go in for the convicts and the inmates to read it. But some of them trickled in there. They, they stopped it from going in institutions in California. I don't know about other nations, uh, other states that, that got the book, but uh, the book is very powerful. I, I, there's names in the book. There's evidence in the book. There's stuff with, the, with these guys did the convicts and them. I can see why they didn't want to put that book in the prisons because these inmates would probably uh, retaliate against these prison guards. Okay, so is there anyone out there? And, and I'm 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 sort of uh, progressing towards uh, wrapping the episode up. But there's I think these are very important questions to conclude this. And that is, is there anyone out there who you think? will hear this story or even back then when you, when you, uh, you testified and say, Hey, I have another version that, um, is not in agreement with DJ Vodka's, uh, version. And I want a chance to tell it. No, not that I know of. I mean, bring them on, bring them on yourself because everything in that, everything in that book I wrote, is I've got all the documentation, evidence to support it. I've never been challenged on that book. That book's been out for 11 years. Nobody's ever challenged me on it because they know if they do, they're going to they're gonna lose. I mean, everything in that book, is I got hard evidence to support everything in that book. I've got deposition testimonies. I've got the inspector general's report in that book. I've got everything in that book. My lawyers looked at everything before it was published. So that book is, is very, very powerful. Never been challenged. And if they want to challenge me, so be it. Challenge me. Okay, great. That that's uh, that's a clear statement. So, where is your book available? Where can people purchase the Green Wall? You purchase it on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, iUniverse. I mean, if people Google my name, DJ Vodka, uh, on Google or search or Yahoo, you'll see massive stories about me, who I am what I'm all about and where they can find the book and, and all that. I, like I said, I, I control the rights to this book. I mean, nobody can go out and make a movie or, or a documentary or anything on it because I control the rights. My life story rights are still with me. Um, and like I said earlier, we, we did a screenplay, me and a good friend of mine, we've got a screenplay written. We have it copyrighted and we also have it registered with the writer's guild back East and back West. And nobody can do anything come close to, putting a movie together like this without my permission. Okay. So as I usually ask all of my, um, my guests, um, as we wrap this up, I want you to, you, you wrote a book, you told a story. Um, you went through a lot as one person, many times standing alone. Um, and, and to a certain extent, uh, exposing yourself to possible, violence to to get a story out and behind that it was a personal feeling of how human beings should be treated and you wanted a message so if you had to wrap it up and we do have to wrap it up now but what message do you want to tell 
my audience about DJ Vodka and, you know, what do you want to leave them with? You know, I'm an honest man. I have integrity. I have morals. Um, I, I don't, I believe in the truth and the truth will prevail. Okay, that's a simple, straightforward message. And also, I'm assuming that, you you know, we can tell from what you uh, wrote and what you said that you believe that irrespective of what happens, um, the courts have their job, but we as human beings need to treat each other with respect, irrespective of where we stand. That's correct. I want to thank you so very much for coming on the show. I want to tell my audience to... If you, you know, when you listen to this episode, whatever your opinion, the book is available, The Green Wall. You should certainly go out and grab it from Amazon and and wherever else you buy your books and, and read it. And, and I think this is an important part of the tapestry of, of this time, of what we're going through, of all the different battles we're fighting. And that's why I brought up the Black Lives Matter, et cetera, because they're, they're all intertwined in their own way. Uh, my audience knows 247 Real Talk as a podcast that allows anyone to speak their truth, their whole truth, and nothing but their truth. As uh, DJ said, if you have something to say that contradicts or supports what he said, you know, you're welcome to come on the show in the same respectful manner as he did and give your version and, ha- and keep the conversation going. Um, I make that that statement simply because in this time when in many instances tensions are heated and people are battling different emotions and struggles from experiences they've had, 247 Real Talk is about the truth and about someone allowing them to share their story. Um, it is It is not about anger and it is not about and I'm saying this bluntly because it's not about people sending emails to our mailbox with, you know, with angry responses. We're here and we're here to tell people's truth. And I, and it's obvious that you had a powerful truth to tell um, DJ. And I thank you for being brave enough. And I thank you for be to, for having the integrity and honor to do the right thing when everything else in your life said, or everything else in your life pointed to danger if you did. That takes a lot of honor, a lot of integrity, because I'm sure there were parts as you went through this process where you stood alone. So thank you so much for um, your service and for what you've done in the, in the progress of who we are as human beings. And Julian, I got one last thing to say is like, you know, black lives matter, all lives matter. And the biggest thing is inmates lives matter and we will end on that note thank you so much for being on the show thank you Julian bye bye I want to say a very special thank you to my guest on this episode retired prison guard Donald DJ Vodka for sharing this powerful story that is a part of who we are as human beings and a part of the reform we look to as we do a little bit more to treat each other with respect, with honor and honesty. 
I want to thank my audience for your continued support. I remind you that you can listen to every episode of 247 Real Talk on your favorite podcast app. Or you can head over to the website at www.247realtalk.net where you can find each episode and you can find information on the guests. If you'd like to leave me a message or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please do send me an email. The mailbox is podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. Until the next time, do take care of yourselves, be safe, and take care of each other.